0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and thanks for joining me for this episode where I'm speaking with Emma Fisher, the co-portfolio manager, along with Matt Williams, of the Early Australian Equities Fund. Early manages just over $8.5 billion and has had a great performance of just over 12.1% over the last three years, which is a handy 2.5% on top of the benchmark. We talked to Emma about her influences from her grandfather through to Hamish Douglas in how she approaches investment, some of the mistakes that she's learned from. And we also talked to her about her market outlook, how she sees the current Australian equities market and where she believes there is value in the market. Also, please remember that we're planning to run our a celebration and a live event, our first ever live event, to celebrate the 100th podcast that we will be recording on the 25th of August in Sydney. With all the COVID lockdown, we hope to be able to make that a live event, although it may switch to an online event. If you're interested in coming along or participating, please email me at hello at inside the rope.com.au. Please remember, this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be, specific financial advice. People are encouraged to receive their own financial advice and make their own inquiries, and to also listen to the disclaimer at the back of this podcast. Thanks again and enjoy the podcast. Emma Fisher, welcome to Inside the Rope.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You're welcome. Emma, perhaps you could kick off by giving our listeners a little bit of insight to who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, sure. So I am the co-portfolio manager of the Airlie Australian Share Fund, so we, at Ailey, we are a local um, long-only fund manager and we are part of the Magellan Group.
0: And, and what's your background? How, what, what's your path to have gotten there?
1: Well, I okay. So if I take your question all the way back to the start, um, how I got into investing, uh, I didn't grow up in an investing household. Uh, I think the only thing that my dad I've ever heard him say about um, the stock market is that it's gambling. Uh, actually, he said that to me recently and I sort of said, oh, um, I don't think it's gambling if you know what you're doing. And he gave me this kind of pitying look that you might give someone, you know, that was a, a problem gambler, I guess. So he still doesn't, uh, hasn't changed his mind. Uh, and my mother was a primary school principal, so tiger mum, but not an investing tiger mum. So I, uh, you know, I didn't grow up really aware of this as an industry. The only person in my life who um, did any sort of investing was my grandfather. And he uh, had given us 50 Commonwealth Bank shares when we were growing up. And I guess that was my only really early exposure. I remember, you know, you get the newspaper, you sort of flick to the back, you look at the share price, the dividends like that. And he would give us um, every six months, we get a check for our dividends of, I don't know, like $50 or something like that. So that was very exciting. So it's sort of in the back of my mind, but I didn't know anything about it. And I went into um, commerce law at uni and quickly decided that I didn't like the law. And so I had this kind of crisis about a year in of what I wanted to do. And he at that time, we had a discussion and he sort of told me about investing and what he was doing. Um, he was like a classic kind of you know product of the depression of ranking credit dividend focused investor. Um but he set, showed me how to open up a Comsec account and I was sort of away and I had no idea what I was doing, but it was really exciting. And I had a few friends at uni that I could talk to about this stuff. None of what we were doing, um, but sort of a bug that way. So I um <clears throat> I then figured out that this was what I wanted to do and I sort of frantically applied for any kind of internship in the industry that I could get Um, and to be honest the only place that would have me was this uh, investment bank called Nomura which is obviously no longer part of Australia but it, it was around for about three or four years and so I started in an internship on the sell side that then went into a graduate position and I did about I think two two and a half years on the sell side and When I reflect back on that time, you know, what I really liked about it, um, in hindsight, probably not at the time, was just the fact that you were, you know, the very bottom rung of a very large hierarchical organisation. And I think, so the next step that I made was I I joined Fidelity. um, So obviously step onto the buy side, um, actually investing in stocks myself. And that for me was really the promised land because I was absolutely obsessed with investing. And suddenly I was surrounded by other people that were really obsessed with investing as well. But I think looking back, I would always say to people, um, you know, I get a lot of people on LinkedIn and things sort of email me and ask me my thoughts on how to get started in the industry. And the advice I always give is I think it's really good to get started somewhere like the sell side or actually, you know, even outside sort of this industry, you just want to work in a big hierarchical organisation and you want to be the bottom rung. It won't be fun at the time. I'm talking about when you're 21, 22, 23. But I think it's a really good learning experience to sort of sit within an organization that way. You know, I think the problem with the buy side as your first role, I've worked with a lot of people who went straight from uni into the buy side. And, you know, it's a funny role because you've got, um, you're interacting with sell side people every day. And because you're their client, they're sort of, you know, telling you that you're an investing genius all the time. And then you're interacting with management teams And, you know, these people have worked their way up through large organisations to the very top over decades. And it's only through a weird kind of quirk of the system that they have to spend any time with you, uh, you know, as a young analyst. And, and, you know, unfortunately, I've seen people in in that dynamic be, you know, you know, in some instances, root to management, for example. And I think that that just reflects the fact that, you know, you probably don't want to go straight into the buy side because you need to have a real world experience of being young and being at the bottom of an organisation. So I'm quite glad that that was my path um so that I could really appreciate my role at Fidelity for what it was, which was honestly, um well, not, not just Fidelity, but my role on the buy side in funds management, just you know, an intellectual wonderland where you're getting flown around the world, getting paid to, you know, analyse businesses, analyse industries, meet management teams, I think you've always just kind of got to be respectful of your place within the system. Um, so that's sort of my my journey into um, funds management. So I worked at Fidelity for a number of years in their um, Australian investment team, so working with Paul Taylor and Kate Howard, uh, And then in 2016, I came across to um, Airly. Uh, to work with John Seviour and Matt Williams, and I word it that way because that that's sort of the truth. Like I, I I made the move because I wanted to work for those guys. They had fantastic reputations in the industry, um, and so I've been at Early since 2016, and I've been running the Early Australian Share Fund with Matt since 2018.
0: Trivia, that's a great introduction. I'm I'm intrigued. What did you do with the uh, 50 Commonwealth Bank shares your grandfather gave you? <laughs>
1: I sold them a long, long time ago, and I you wish I had. My sister, yeah, my sister never did. She still got hers. In fact, she um she really early on signed up to the dividend reinvestment plan, so her shareholding is just um absolutely uh, bloomed while mine is uh, non-existent, unfortunately.
0: So there's have sold your- them
1: around twenty-five dollars a share, I think. So
0: Co- compound annual growth, money. compound annual growth, and patience being a lesson there, I suspect. Absolutely. Exactly. So so it's interesting, Emma, that you point out that you've really had some big influences, starting with your grandfather, uh, then with John and then with Matt Williams. And I also suspect Hamish Douglas coming across when early came across into the fold of Magellan. Can you tell me a little bit about what learnings uh, that you've picked up from all four of those influences and any other major influences that you've had?
1: Yeah, I have been really lucky in my career to have a lot of people to look up to and learn from. One thing that I always kind of reflect on when I am, I guess, studying these great investors is noticing the process of how they build conviction because everyone does it really differently. Uh, Paul Taylor, I think what he's done really well is build his long- and has long-term performance around these um, core positions in businesses and not selling them. And, you know, Hamish is a bit like that too, actually, because, you know, we all say in this game that we're long-term investors, but very few people have the ability to actually identify great businesses and then get out of their own way and do nothing. Um, And I think Paul has done that really, really well. And I think Hamish uh, is also doing that very well. Um, Kate, Kate was a really big is a really big influence on me. I think what I really respect about her is she's very uh, entrepreneurial about finding her own ideas up and down the market cap spectrum. You know, she does her own work. She runs her own models. Uh, I hate to say this as, you know, a prior member of the Fidelity investment team, but I think she could do it all by herself without the um, the help of the analyst team. Uh, and I think, you know, reflecting on that, it's, it's for her to build conviction. It's around doing her own work. And I think I've probably emulated that a little bit. Um, you know, Matt Matt as well, he's somebody who, you know, builds conviction through going out and talking to people um, and, you know, pulling together the whole, I guess, supply chain of a business by talking to competitors, by talking to management, by talking to customers and things like that. Um, so Kate and Matt are quite similar in that respect. You know, they really do their own work and that's how they build conviction. John, um, I think for him, you know, it's um, so I should say at early our investment process, we we weigh these four factors and, you know, most places you work at are going to have similar, similar kind of factors. But I think in investing, it's all about how you implement your process. But the four factors are starting with the balance sheet, business quality, management quality and valuation. So of these four factors, all of us at early so myself, Matt and John, you know, as different portfolio managers, we kind of put different weightings on different factors. And John has always been, you know, one of the most influential things he's ever said to me is uh, that I always remember is um, you've got to find your own anchor as an investor. You can't just emulate what somebody else does. You need to find what you stand for. And what he stands for, so of those four factors, I know that if I bring him an idea that has a rock solid net cash balance sheet and is cheap, that, you know, those two things get him over the line a lot of the time. So he really builds his conviction on uh, very solid balance sheets and cheap valuations. Um, So it's, you know, it's a different style. And that's what I mean is, you know, when I look at those four factors, the thing that I'm most drawn to is probably a mix of business and management quality. Um, If I look at Matt's process, he's very drawn to management teams. So it's interesting at early, we've all got this, you know, one investment process that we're using, but as individuals, we're really putting weight on different things. And and I think that just reflects the fact that investing, it's all about trade-offs and which trade-offs you're willing to make. Now, one that we never make is the balance sheet. So that's always got to be a tick. But the reality is, you know, with the rest of it, typically the most common trade-off that you're always making and juggling in this game is um, quality and valuation. You know, we'd all love to own the best businesses in Australia and and obviously, you know, the best businesses are usually pretty easy to identify uh, in terms of the characteristics and they're just very obvious. So I would would throw up a business like REA, for example. I think that's one of the best businesses in Australia and it's quite obvious to people why it would be. And, And yet when you turn to the valuation, you know, that's that's kind of a trade-off that I find difficult to make because I think owning the best businesses um, on, you know, we talk PE multiples, but obviously there's, there's more to it than that. But it's an easy way to compare disparate businesses and industries. So when you're looking at an REA on 55 times PE or whatever it's on today, that's kind of a trade-off where I think, yes, it's one of the best quality businesses in the world. Uh, sorry, in Australia, um, possibly the world. Um, but, you know, the valuations are telling you that and I don't really think anyone's missing anything. Um, so, you know, those are the sorts of kind of trade-offs that we have to make every day as investors and, and how you settle that for yourself and decide where you want to sit on the quality versus value versus, um, you know, any of those factors. That, that's really what defines you and your anchor as an investor.
0: I really love the point Emma, you made about uh, do nothing. I think you said get out, get out of your own way. Um, You know, it's so often I see investors, clients who associate so much in life with activity equals outcome. If you want to get fitter, you work out more, you go to the gym. If you want to get smarter, you read more, you study more. And therefore they think uh, within a portfolio or within their investment, the more activity they have, or the more they fiddle, or the more they change things, the better the outcomes are going to be, when often uh, it's that conviction in their original position and, uh, and the patience that plays out over time, which really bears fruit. So I, I really enjoy that
1: um, yeah, learning. Yeah, interesting because also, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you You're right. there, but hey. as, an, as an institutional investor, you've also got this whole industry that sprung up, um you know, and, and I don't mean this in a sort of cynical way, but the reality is there's a lot of noise coming to you every day um, because, you know, there's a business models that make money off you trading. Um, so, you know, if you sit on 10% turnover and you're truly holding a business for 10 years, that's you're not a great client to a lot of people. Um, so you've got to learn to look through the noise. Uh, I think, so one thing I read um that really stuck with me. So there's this, you know, absolute tome of a book. Um, it's by McKinsey. It's on valuation. And, and a lot of it, honestly, you could skip. But they do a chapter on return on invested capital. And they did this study of uh, businesses and the returns that they generate over decades. Uh, and they basically said, well, if this, you know, they put it, them in buckets and so take the top buckets. So business that generates a return on invested capital of over 25%. And then they looked at those businesses two decades later to see which bucket they now sat in. And I think something like 80% of the time, those businesses that were in that high bracket to begin with stayed in that bracket. And so the takeaway from that is that businesses that have a competitive advantage, they actually more often than not are able to sustain that over a long period of time. So if you can correctly identify those at the start as an investor, and do nothing for 20 years, you know, you've you probably compounded your money at a fantastic rate. Uh, but so few of us can do nothing because, you know, I'm sure within, if you take a stock in that bucket, there'd be discrete periods where its share price is probably down 50%, um, you know, that are, that are lost when you look at a long term view, um, but really test you as an investor in the short term. And I think, you know, if if I reflect back, probably some of my worst mistakes when you do um, when you do question yourself on, on a really great business or, um, you know, fail to add more when those opportunities sort of rarely come up. Um, so I think you've got to do the work up front. And if nothing's changed, get, you know, as I say, get out of your own way and, and just do nothing.
0: I'm interested in that point that you make there about the things that stop you from adding more when opportunities come up. Uh, I think it'd be interesting if you just talked about what some of the behavioural things that come across that stop you from doing that in your experience.
1: Yeah, so one of the paths I guess I've been on um, over the last few years is really, you know, I, I've had many years as an analyst um, and now over the last few years in a portfolio management capacity, the thing that I've really been reflecting on is I think that the the great portfolio managers, I don't think it's, they're successful because they're smarter than people. I don't think they're successful because they're better analysts. Um, in fact, a lot of an alarming number of them, I, I think, are woeful analysts. Um, but most of them I think are great because they've mastered the psychology of being a good investor. And it's the psychology piece that's really, really hard. And one of the lessons that I learned is that you've really got to let go of, of letting share price of thinking that the share price is kind of a mark-to-market on like a scoreboard, um, you know, you have to be comfortable in this industry with, well, as an investor, you don't have to be in this industry, you could just be an individual investor. Um, you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're never going to get a yes or no answer. Uh, you know, even if the share price goes up, you may not necessarily be right in the long term about a business. So you have to be comfortable in that grey. Uh, and when the share price does fall, and you've bought something you own it so you've made one decision and, and technically you've probably got that decision wrong because there was a more attractive entry point that, that came up you've now got to make decision number two which is have the facts change and do i want to sell this is my thesis broken i.e is there more downside or do i want to add more and you know i think the the mistakes that i've made that i'm the hardest on myself for are when i kind of flub that decision When I, um, you know, I said there's two decisions, but really there's a third. There's the option to do nothing. Um, So I'll give you an example. So James Hardy is a business that I've known really well um, and liked for a long time. Um, And we owned it at Fidelity. Um, When I came across it uh, early and and started looking at the builders, made, you know, very quickly sure to um, invest in it in our funds at early as well. And everything was sort of playing out, you know, the reasons I like it. And they got into this sort of, I probably call it a 12-month period where everything sort of went wrong, um, both uh, internally and externally. So James Hardy, they make um, building products, so they make siding products for houses, and they make most of their money in the US. So the reason you own it and the reason it's a great business is this: this market share gain story, which is it's, it's a better siding product than the thing most people put on their house in the US, which is um, vinyl. And vinyl is like, um, it's kind of hard to get your head around as an Australian, but vinyl is sort of like, imagine like an ice cream container, um, that sort of flimsy plastic, and people put it on the outside of their house. And honestly, if you threw a ball at it, it would crack, Um, but it's very cheap. Uh, but over the years, James Hardy's been taking share in the US market from vinyl because it's just a much better product. And yes, it's more expensive, but people kind of get their heads around the fact that it looks a lot better and it makes your house worth more. So that's that's the reason that you own it is this market share gain story. And they've got 95% um, of the fiber cement market. So they really are the market um, in fiber cement. But obviously there's also a cycle. Um, and you know, they're selling into new home construction and in the U S coming out of the GFC, um, the lesson there was there is a cycle in new home construction and it can really go against you. And even if James Hardy was killing it, which actually it was doing very well at the time, yeah, sort of sailing into the GFC, you still wouldn't have wanted to own the shares going into that, um, housing crisis. I think they, I think they, um, you know, fell something like 60 or 70%. So what happened? So we're now talking around 20, uh, 2018. So in 2018, um, the housing cycle in the US took a bit of a pause. And it was, if people remember, it was a period a little bit similar to now, actually, where we had this seeming outbreak of inflation. So you had freight inflation going through the roof, you had lumber, a lot of input costs going through the roof. Uh, and, and the Fed was raising rates, and that was feeding through to mortgage rates as well. So basically homeowners in the US all just took a bit of a pause. The, uh, it didn't fall in the way that it did in the GFC, but the industry really flatlined. Uh, and it coincided with a time at James Hardy where you had a long-running CEO who was very well regarded, who built the business since the 90s, uh, leaving and a new ceo coming in who was from you know, an external appointee so no one really knew him or knew his background so it was this confluence of factors um and the share price went i think it halved actually and we'd owned it all this of this time and i had this opportunity where you know this was a stock well in my wheelhouse i knew it well um i'd done a lot of work on it i really liked it but i totally flubbed that decision to really add more i think we added a little bit um but we should have taken a big swing at this but at the time all i saw was risk um you know the risk of a new management team the risk of the cycle going against you um the risk of their balance sheet all of these factors <clears throat> anyway looking back it was a it was the phenomenal buying opportunity in this stock because it then you know today it's got a 46 dollar share price and we're probably talking about it at around 15 dollars. and yes we've participated in the funds we've owned it this whole time um, but I got to give myself as the analyst really mixed marks for that. Um, yes, we've made money out of it, but we should have made a lot more um, because I, we had this great business coming our way over, <coughs> apologies, over what were short term factors. Um, and, you know, of those three decisions that I was facing sell, buy, or do nothing, I chose to do nothing when I should have really lent into the fear um, and bought.
0: Emma, you, you've been very good and in talking about some of the areas where you could have done better, and I think we always learn more from uh, errors or mistakes or, or lost opportunities, and you've talked a lot about um, influencers and mentors and people who have influenced your your investing style, but, of course, you've carved out quite a space for yourself and proved yourself to be a successful investor in your own right. Um, perhaps you can talk a little bit about some of the successes that you've had, um, how you built your conviction around those positions, and maybe bear to life the the sort of uh, investment style of early at the same time, if you want. I think if I'm right, PWR might be uh, mm-hmm. a company. If you maybe want to explain to investors uh, what they do and and how you think about that investment, it'd be helpful.
1: Yeah, so I, it, it's funny. I was just having a look at sort of our. Um, you know, forming a presentation for someone around our our best performers inception. And and a few of them have a really similar thematic, and that is um, owner managed businesses. So we, you know, as I said at the start, we've, you know, one of the big parts of our process is assessing management. And it's, you know, it's worth talking about, actually, because not everyone does that. Some investors take the view that you don't want to meet with management, because they're going to be you know highly promotional obviously they're going to tell you everything's great and um instead you should just not meet with management and assess each stock on its own merits and its numbers and things like that um, but i i've personally felt over the years that there's been a lot of value added in sort of seeing the whites of someone's eyes and 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 seeing the interaction between the ceo and the cfo or whoever else is in the room and just you know getting an understanding of who's running the business so obviously, the, the issue that we're dealing with with management always is this agency problem, which is that we're the shareholders of the business, and they're the person that's appointed to run it. Um, but often, they're not the owners, you know, they're not owners in any meaningful way. Uh, and, you know, there's ways to get around that in terms of your um, long term incentive plans and, and how people are paid and what they're paid off. Uh, but for us, we've always And anecdotally felt that the best investments tend to be owner-managed businesses. So these are businesses that are still run by the original founders of the business and where the original founder still retains a big um, ownership stake. And I think intuitively, you know, when you hear it put that way, it would make sense that these types of businesses would outperform because they've got all their reputation and in, in a lot of cases, all their money and their family's money tied up in this business. And so you can typically kind of get around a lot of the agency problems of management teams, which is a real short-term focus. So some of the best investments that we've had or that I, I guess um, to counterweight me, you know, going on at length about mistakes that I've made, I should also talk about some things that I've gotten, right? Um, you know, that some of the best thing, businesses that I've identified as an investor is when, you know, it ticks all four of those boxes of our process. So a good balance sheet, a good valuation, a high-quality business, but also when it's an owner-managed business, that's when I get really excited. So the two that I'd sort of nominate as PWR is actually quite a recent holding. Um, we've only uh, really invested in the last year, but it's been a really good performer for the funds. I think it's up about 50% since we, um, it, since we invested. So PWR is um, it's a pretty small company actually. It's about a $700 million market cap. And it's the, the, fa- the guy that runs at Keys Wheel, he, um, he was a mechanic in the 70s and he um, basically said, oh, you know, I, I think I can make radiators. Um, and he sort of did. He had a crack at it and he got better and better and he got his son involved and they got better and better. And now they're actually making the best radiators in the world. Um, because they're supplying every single one of the Formula 1 teams with all of their radiators and cooling systems. So if you know anything about Formula 1, um, you know that you have to be pretty good to supply these guys. Um, so I think that just validates that, that they do make the best um, cooling systems in the world. So, you know, the reason sort of forward-looking, the reason to own it is, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of stuff around um, electric vehicles, drones, Um uh, missiles, basically anything that, um, has a computer in it, um, gets really hot. So it needs cooling systems. So they're working on a lot of high end applications that I think could underpin the next decade for the business, but from a management team perspective, you know, they're just, we went and did a site tour. Um, they've got this, their main site is in the Gold Coast or yeah, in the middle of the Gold Coast in a place called Ormo. And, um, you know, you just meet, meet with these people and you know, we're meeting with companies all day. So, um all year really so when you meet with when you meet with the real deal um you, you know it and you notice it and um and this guy really is the real deal and it's just little things like you walk around the um factory floor and he's greeting every single person by name including you know the male guy um it's just little things like that I, I mean another one that I talk about that's probably a, been a longer um a business that we've owned for a long time has been mineral resources Uh, And that's another one that um, it's all the stars aligning, which is why we bought the big position in it. Um, And it's done really well. I think it's up about fourfold since we went substantial. But it's just one where it's all, it's just a bet on the management team. So Chris Ellison, um, he was one of the original founders of the business and he's the only original founder that's still really involved in the business today as CEO. And again, he owns about 12% of the shares But he's, you know, he he again, he's he's the real deal. Like uh, we had a dinner with him recently, and he was, um, I guess, bragging to us about a nurse in his team that's going to the Olympics. You know, little things like that. Like you know, they're they're just there's so many little comments that they make that really stand out to you because they're just so different to the normal dated meetings they have with management teams. Um, So mineral resources has been a really good one where. You're just backing him as a deal maker. I mean, the real, um, you know, the the really um, impactful deal that they've made recently. So they bought, um, so before we were shareholders, I'd met with the chairman and I'd met with the management teams a few times. And the first thing I sort of noticed was that, wow, these guys really do what they say. Uh, And I remember having this meeting with the chairman where he was talking about this site that they'd bought called Wojnarh. Uh, in WA, and he was talking about the lithium plans for this site, and they're going to build this spodumene plant, and we think it can run at x hundred thousand tons. Blah blah blah. I'm taking all these notes, and you know they 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 go on and do it, and they would have paid about thirty million dollars for that site. In fact, they they got it for such a song that they ended up um that you know the people that sold it to them sued the board for selling it to them for so cheaply. Um, so they paid thirty million dollars for the site, and then they would have spent um, uh, probably two or three hundred million dollars on capex um, within two to three years. So we're talking about a net total spend of around three hundred million dollars, and they sold sixty percent of it to Albemarle, um, one of the largest lithium players in the world, for one point um, three billion US. So three three years later, um, and that, so obviously like a, a total implied valuation of. I think close to three billion dollars. Um, so just a phenomenal, um, a phenomenal deal. And uh, sorry, I have just lost my train of thought. That wasn't my phone going off, was it?
0: No, I, I just, just, I'm just going to. Emma, maybe we could turn now to talk a little bit about your current view of the market Uh, there's a lot of chatter in the market at the moment that people think um you know things are overvalued and inflation's on its way and we may see uh multiples re-rate backwards and you know it it may not be a good time to be owning equities um on the contrary to that i think ailey's been in the market talking about the strength of the domestic economy and the fact that i I want to say i don't have the numbers in front of me that there's there's some analysis you've done that there's 65 million dollars spent going overseas every year versus 45 and there's a net 20 billion dollar benefit um, of lockdowns perhaps you could talk just a little bit about how you're seeing things at the moment in terms of investing money deploying money um are you seeing things that you want to buy at valuations you're happy with or are you very nervous and conservative
1: yeah i I think we're sort of all of the above. I think when we look at it, so set aside the markets, when we look at the economy, it's it's in great shape and it's in great shape across the board. In fact, the strength across the board is really the piece that we haven't seen for decades. Usually it's the miners letting you down or the banks letting you down or, you know, the Australian consumer letting you down. Um, but all of those pockets of the market are, are absolutely very, very healthy um, and particularly from a balance sheet perspective. So as you say, um, you know, the analysis that we've done is that we send $65 billion a year overseas um, in terms of what Australians spend when we're allowed to. And I think you've got to think of that money. It's very powerful money because it's pure discretionary spend because you're obviously only going overseas if you can afford it. Um, And then the net factor is the fact that we bring in $45 billion a year in terms of tourism dollars that we've obviously now missing out on. But I think, you know, when you think about those two buckets of money, that 45 billion is really targeted in terms of where it goes in our economy. It's going to the travel operators, the tourism operators, hotels, um, you know, restaurants, things like that. It's not going broadly across the economy. Travelers to Australia, they don't actually tend to go out and buy stuff from JB Hi-Fi. They're certainly not buying a TV while they're over here. Um, So, you know, the difference between that is that you've now got this $65 billion a year trapped here, and it's spent really broadly across our economy. Um, and so, you know, we, we're we now sadly talking in years rather than months that um, the borders are likely to or have been and are likely to remain closed for. So, yes, at the end of the day, this is not going to last forever. It is a short-term factor. But the opportunities I guess we've been seeing for the last year have been in companies that um, are leveraged to this dynamic and are, you know, making a lot of cash, have low reinvestment needs. So all that cash comes straight back to the balance sheet and we think sort of next phase for shareholders is um is you know the capital management piece so really the some of the retailers i think look um still very attractive value um and and as i said you know i think fy22 is really going to be a story about capital returns and getting that cash back to shareholders i think when i look at the market as a whole for the last 10 years really it's it's felt like an um it's felt like a relative game there's not been much absolute value anywhere Um, But, you know, playing that relative game, when you look at the cash rate of 10 basis points and you look at the fact that Australia is actually the third highest dividend yielding market in the world um, with a dividend yield of, of, off the top of my head, maybe uh, low 3%, that relativity is still very attractive for equities. Um, And so, you know, it all comes down to the cash rate. Um, and it all comes down to the price of money globally, which is why everyone's having this debate around inflation and what it means for interest rates. So the question is is it transitory or is it structural? Uh, I find it, I think it could be transitory for longer than people think, but I find it very hard to put myself in the structural camp only because debt itself is such a deflationary force and it makes us, we're sitting on a mound of debt. Um, Bigger than globally bigger than we ever have before. And what that means is we're all so much more sensitive to small changes in interest rates. So I'm not arguing that interest rates can never go up. In fact, I think they should go up. Um, We've got emergency monetary policy settings here in Australia and there's absolutely no economic emergency. Um, So we shouldn't be sitting at 10 basis points. And I think anyone that's been to an auction lately feels that very keenly. Uh, So I think interest rates can go up, but I don't see them returning to or needing to return to 3% cash rate uh, in order to slow demand, which is why you increase interest rates, because I think a 50 basis point increase would very much slow demand. Uh, You know, most Australians are homeowners and that would be a 25% increase in your repayment rates. Um, So I, I, I tend to put myself in the camp of thinking probably lower for longer. But from an equity market perspective, you just have to be aware that that the next move can and probably should be up.
0: Emma, I think that's a wonderful way to uh, leave uh, our listeners in the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Thank you
1: very much for having me, David.
0: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.